Back in the spring, one of my really good friends from college was visiting from out of town, and so we grabbed dinner together. And we're talking about what's happening in our churches, we're talking about what's happening in our families, and then of course we start talking about the great times we had together in Bible college. And we're laughing and we're telling stories, and my friend looks at me and he goes, do you think those were the best years of our life? And I thought something I've been thinking about a little bit, and I said, no, I don't think it's the best years of our life, but it's certainly the most fun years of our life. And I don't know what your college experience was like, but mine was fantastic. And when you get a group of 12 young adult men gathered together in a dorm, you do all sorts of crazy things together. We did practical jokes all the time. A couple of my favorites, the two doors on either side of the hallway, we put some rope and we tied the doors together so that the guys couldn't get out of their door in the morning. That was pretty fun. In fall, what do you do with all of these leaves? Well, you should fill up somebody's car or maybe someone else's dorm room. That was a good time. Maybe you didn't decide to clean your room so we would take something that may or may not have some stench to it, hide it in your bedroom a little bit. That was pretty fun. And then maybe, maybe, I'm not saying I did this, take a bag of flour, and when somebody's in the shower, see what happens when you mix these two things together. That was a lot of fun. But we also did things together as a whole dorm, and you might think, like, Dave, did you actually do this? And we did. We were a bunch of young adult guys, and we thought, at the end of each year, we're going to have a toga party. Because what else do you do when you're 20-something years old? And my son said, Dad, there's no way you did that. And I said, well, let me show not only you a picture, but our entire church family a picture. To which my nine-year-old replied, do you need to ask grandma and grandpa's permission to show that? And I said, no, I'm a man. I will embarrass myself without anyone else's permission. And I'm sure we were a little bit obnoxious during this time. We would uh, dress up in togas and we would walk around uh, the school. We would walk around the girls' dorms, and because we were very innovative, we would chant, toga, toga, toga. And then we'd walk around the other guys' dorms, and we would chant, toga, toga. And then we'd go to the local mall and quickly get kicked out of the local mall. And while we were doing this, much to our surprise, one of the other guy dorms broke into our dorm and completely made a mess out of everything. We walked back in to celebrate the night and to do the festivities that we had planned, and people had gone into our uh, shower room and taken all of our soaps, all of our shampoos, all of that sort of thing, and sprayed the entire bathroom down. They had taken our uh, lounge in the area of our dorm and uh, put everything upside down in the middle, torn all the things off the wall, and just made a huge mess. And so we're looking around at each other, and we're thinking, well, who's going to clean this up? We didn't do it. Why should we clean it up? But we don't know who did it, so we can't talk to the guy who's in charge of all the dorms and ask them to clean it up. What are we going to do? You might be familiar with another story with a group of about a dozen male young adults, and they were hanging out around in the city, and they had spent some great time walking around and having a good time, and they had uh, rented a room to themselves, and they got back to this room, and they were kind of dirty from hanging out all together, walking around the city. They looked around, they said, we rented this place, we don't know where the towels are, we don't know where the wash basin is, we don't know how this is all going to get together, but we're fairly gross right now. And so as they're looking around at each other, saying, well, I'm not going to figure out how to clean your feet, and you're not going to figure out how to do mine, what are we supposed to do? The oldest guy in the group, a guy in his early 30s, grabbed a big wash uh, basin and some water and wrapped a towel around his waist, and he came out and he said, allow me to take care of you. And these 12 young disciples 
are going, Jesus, that's the job of a servant. Why are you doing that? Not at this exact moment, but in Mark chapter 10, Jesus looks at his disciples, pardon me, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, whoever wants to be first must be saved of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the third week of our sermon series, Generous Worship. And today we're going to look at what does it mean to serve as worship? What does it mean to have a lives in which we give ourselves to others to serve as worship? And to recognize that every thought, every word, every deed glorifies Jesus if it honors him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sermon series. Thank you for us as a church having this value of generous worship, giving all of ourselves to all of you. And God, as we look at a fairly heavy topic, may we have open hearts and open minds to what you want to say to us. And God, I pray that my words would fall down so that you could use these words powerfully in any way you want in the lives of those who are in person and watching online. May this honor you greatly, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, today we are in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. If you're brand new to church, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Bible can be a little bit intimidating. Uh, thankfully, there's a table of contents. If you download the app that's on the screen behind me, it should be a little bit easier to navigate that. The book of Philippians is in the New Testament. It's a little tricky to find. You get the four Gospels at the beginning, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then you get the big letters. You get Acts and Romans and Corinthians. And then free of charge this morning... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn, right? There it is. It's right there. Philippians chapter two. We're in Philippians chapter two. Here's what happens. The apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He's currently in prison and he's raising up some money to help out the Macedonian churches. And so the church in Philippi is a fairly wealthy church. They've got a little bit of extra money. And so they gather a whole bunch of money together and they say to their friend Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus, take this amount of money and go visit Paul. Tell him that we're praying for him. Tell him that we're caring for him. Take this money so it can be a blessing to multiple other churches. And so you can imagine, you make this uh, multiple day journey, you go see a friend who has helped launch and start the church in Philippi, and you just start connecting a little bit. And the Apostle Paul um, is under house arrest, so he's allowed to have visitors, but still not allowed to leave the house. And he's naturally going to ask, Epaphroditus, what's happening in Philippi? And he tells about the good things that are taking place, he tells about the not so good things that are taking place, and Paul says, before you leave, I'm going to write a letter, and you can take this letter back to the church in Philippi. Chapter one in Philippians is beautiful. Philippians is kind of that coffee cup book. There are so many little verses that we can take away from that maybe you have literally on coffee cups or maybe you've memorized a couple verses here or there. And Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he's thanking them for their generosity. He's telling them that he's praying for them and he reminds them in chapter one, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Church in Philippi, be aware that I know what's taking place, what's going on, and I think there's some things that need to be changed. For those of you who enjoy taking notes, our outline begins with this, growing a heart for service. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you enjoy reading along word for word, I always preach from the uh, English Standard Version. If there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
every week I preach from the ESV, but this week I came a little bit closer to switching it up. I memorized this passage years ago in the 1984 version of the NIV. And that 1984 version does something a little bit different. It takes the opening two verses and it puts if before each clause. And you can, you can hear Paul's concern about the church in Philippi. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you've received comfort, if you have fellowship in the Spirit, if you have tenderness and compassion. I love how pastor and author Matt Chandler describes this. If the gospel is true, your life should look like it's true. If you're sitting in the auditorium or watching from home, it's quite simple. If you say Jesus has changed your life, your life should look like it's been changed. And the Apostle Paul, after this beautiful opening chapter in Philippians chapter one, goes straight for the heart in Philippians chapter two. Make no mistake, the Apostle Paul loves this church deeply, but he's saying, if you've actually met with Jesus Christ, your lives should be radically changed. He has this good news that's taking place. This isn't just about fire insurance and escaping the flames of hell. This is about friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors, saying there's something different about that person. Maybe you met Jesus later on in life and you've seen personal life change. Maybe you've been a Christian for decades and are people looking at you saying, that person looks different. That person acts different. That person's life is a life of service. As a church, we don't exist to have good music on Sundays. We don't exist to have a decent sermon every week. We don't exist to have ministries and programs that you're gonna learn about after the service. As a church, we exist to make disciples. As a church, we sing songs so that draws you into the throne room of God and you're reminded of his majesty, of his power, of his love, of his grace. A sermon should hopefully capture you and think about the awe and wonder of how great Jesus is. And the ministries are to help make disciples. It's really difficult to be a disciple completely by yourself, all alone. You can do it, but it's hard. But to come together and to recognize we're gonna serve one another, we're gonna talk about life together, and we're gonna help one another realize what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This coming Saturday is training day, and I don't know exactly how many people are gonna come over the last few years. We've had about between 150 and 200 people. And Pastor Joel and Pastor David kind of owned that Saturday morning, and I said, I'd like to speak in that opening session, whatever you want me to do. And they said, Dave, we want you to bring something that's an encouragement. We don't want it to be a pep rally this year. We want you to really talk about what's going on and what does it mean to have a heart of service. And so heads up for any of you who are going to be here on Saturday, we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians 13. What does it mean to truly love one another? How do we do this worship thing? How do we do this service thing? How do we show people what the love of Jesus looks like if his love hasn't captivated our own hearts? Have you been so transformed by the love of Jesus that you are a conduit of that love to others? That when people see you, they think, I don't know what Christianity is about, but if it's anything like what that person is showing me, then I want to know more. How are we supposed to do that? Verses three and four, Paul continues, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Humility is not a first century virtue. If you think about first century Rome, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The army, the strength, 
the power, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Humility was looked down upon. As one commentator so aptly writes, the simplicity of Paul's language should not blind us to its difficulty. Easily said does not mean easily accomplished. Paul continues to pursue our hearts and encourages an inward change to take place. When you walk into our foyer, you see those two big words on that front wall, welcome home. It's our desire that everybody who enters our church, whether you're a longtime attender or whether you're brand new to Ellerslie, would walk into our building and feels like coming to Ellerslie is like coming home. You may have also noticed there's another blank wall between the two bathrooms. And over the last year, I have led multiple conversations about what do we put on that wall? Is it pictures? Is it a Bible verse? Is it a phrase? What do we put there? And I've had these conversations, and this isn't what we're going to put there, but one of the ideas that really gained traction was this idea of, well, the front says, welcome home. The other wall should say, welcome in, grab a towel, and get to work. As one spiritual author writes, if the cross is a symbol of salvation, a towel is a symbol of service. But it might take a while for our hearts to get there. A friend of mine lives across the street from one of the uh, homeless shelters in downtown Edmonton. And he said it's really interesting when it's kind of that political time and all the politicians show up or the counselors show up or the different people in government show up and they arrive and most of them get their pictures, get uh, a couple good shots and they're in their cars and they're off and their handlers are protecting them the whole time. He says it's really interesting to see who actually sticks around, who talks to the people in our city who don't have homes, who feed them, who engage them. When you start to serve, it might be really hard work. But the more you serve, the more natural it comes, the more of a difference you see yourself making and the more you put the needs of others in front of you. Like anything in life, deliberate practice, working hard towards a specific end is what creates growth in our lives and you start to see a growing heart of service. Now, it's no accident that we're doing a service as worship on Ministry Fair Sunday. That was obviously very planned out. But at the same time, I don't want you to think that service only happens inside the church. And if you're thinking, Dave, this is just a big recruiting Sunday, it's so much bigger than that. A large church down in the States came up with this acronym that I really like called SHAPE. And it says, what are your spiritual gifts? How has God gifted you as a follower of Jesus? What, are, what is your heart? What are you truly passionate about? When you look at yourself in the mirror and think of your own abilities, what is it that you are naturally gifted at? What's your personality? And then what sort of experiences have you had? And so I look at that acronym shape and I think about my own. I think, okay, I think God's given me a spiritual gift of teaching. That's great. I'm passionate about sports. Um, Abilities-wise, I've played soccer for 30-plus years. I've refed soccer. I've coached soccer. I've, I've been on some sort of management boards before. Uh, my personality is that I like systems and drawing everything together. And my personal experience, I said, when it comes to soccer, I know a lot what's going on. And I thought, I'd love to be part of a soccer board. And currently, I'm part of a board for one of the biggest master's leagues in the entire city. It has nothing to do with church. In fact, some of you know this. Maybe I've said it before. There's a four-man board. We've got a Muslim. We've got a Jew. We've got a Roman Catholic and a Protestant pastor. It's amazing when we get together. <laughs> As we head into the fall, how do you want to get involved? 
Are you the same as me and you're just passionate about sports and maybe you're thinking, I'd love to be a part of my kid's sports team, whether that's indoor soccer, whether that's basketball, maybe there's some sort of way to be involved in dance or a recital that's taking place behind the scenes. Maybe you want to get involved in the local school and say, I'd love to read to kids. I'd love to help out in these classrooms. I'd like to be a part of the parent-teacher association. How do you want to get involved? Maybe you have professional gifts and you've never thought about how your professional gifts can be used in the church. Maybe you're a lawyer, you're a photographer, you're an accountant. Maybe you have gifts in, uh, in helps and you're naturally good at all sorts of things around the house. How can you use those gifts to bless the church around you? Maybe there's single parents who would say, I would love somebody to fix my car because I know my brakes are squealing and I can't afford to do it on my own. I know there's mold in my basement, but I have no idea how to, how to fix it. And even if I did, I don't got the money to do it. Maybe you want to serve more behind the scenes and you're thinking, over the last summer, I've really seen a notice in, in the prayer ministry here at Ellerslie. Would you like to be involved in pre-service prayer, in post-service prayer, or get the prayer updates throughout the week? Maybe you want to be involved more behind the scenes at the church, like working in the kitchen, or maybe you are passionate about leading a small group, or you think, I'd love to mentor young adults, or maybe there's a new Canadian that you would like to help get acclimated to what it means to live in Canada. Maybe you're white doing that, maybe you're non-white doing that, helping people recognize the body of Christ is incredible. There's one guy in the church who I'm friends with, and he serves behind the scenes in a beautiful way. And he finds out people who are less fortunate and he, and he goes to their homes and he fixes things for them totally free of charge. Is that something you would like to do? And then there's always the really big events as well, right? Did you know that on a Sunday morning at Ellerslie, it takes about 125 volunteers to make Sunday mornings work? 125. There's a dozen people who just do the production booth. There's about another dozen people who are on the worship teams. There's about 50 plus who are doing uh, first impressions between the two services. About 60, I believe. Um, Kelsey's standing right there. You can correct me later if I'm wrong, Kels, about how many people it takes to do um, children's ministry. How would you like to be involved and what does that look like? As we've mentioned over and over throughout the summer, it's about looking around and seeing the needs that God has placed around you. Verse four says we aren't just here to look at our own interests but also the interests of others. That beautiful passage, as beautiful as it is, pales in comparison to the next few verses. One author said, there's mountaintop passages in all the scripture, and this is one of them. Commonly referred to as the Christ hymn, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. It's incredibly beautiful. But if verses three to four say, how are we supposed to serve? Verses five to eight answer the questions, well, why should we serve? Why should we view somebody more important than myself? Why should I look after the interests of others? Why should I give my time? Why should I give my money? Why should I give my expertise to helping others? The Apostle Paul says, because Jesus did it first. Jesus' heart for service. It's the second part of our outline this morning. Picking up in verse six. Who though, uh, I'll pick up in verse five. Have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
I'm going to spend a couple minutes talking about each of those verses individually. Verse 6, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. I mentioned to one of our board members just before the service started, I'm looking around and going, it's not just that I don't know some people's names. I'm looking around the foyer going, I don't know if I've ever seen you before. And so if you're new to Ellerslie, welcome here. And some of you are longtime Christians coming to Ellerslie. Some of you are coming to Ellerslie going, what is the Bible all about? Here is Christian orthodoxy. Here is what Christians believe. The Christ hymn, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, there is no clearer place in all of scripture that talks about the divinity of Jesus. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is God and has been God from the very beginning. He's not like God. He's not similar to God. He's not lesser than God. If you think about a Greek pantheon, that Zeus and God the Father are the same and Jesus is kind of like Hermes. It is not like that at all. Jesus is God, always has been God from the very beginning. And when he comes to earth, he's not a demigod or half God, half man. He is the God man, fully God, fully man. Now, I want to show you something that was eye-opening to me this past week that I had never seen before. Take a look at this. While Jesus is God and does not count equality with God as something to be grasped, humanity is the opposite. Though we are in the form of man, we count equality with God as something to be grasped. Though we are not in that form. You might say, well, Dave, what does that mean? Over the last number of uh, couple of months, we've been going through the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden. The snake comes up to him, and the snake says to Adam and Eve, do you want to be like what? Like God. We wrapped up our Genesis series with uh, the great story of the Tower of Babel, and we see all these nations gathering together to build this tower up into the sky. Why? So they can be like God. And if we're being really honest with ourselves, we're still doing this today. This is my skill set. Why should I share it with people who don't have my same skill set? This is my calendar. Do you know how busy I am at work and with all my kids' activities? This is my money. I've worked hard with this. Why should I give it away? And Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Think about what Jesus gave up. He's in the throne room of heaven, perfect face-to-face -face community with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, being worshipped by angels, and he gives up the glory and the majesty and the beauty of heaven to come and to be born in a barn. Why should we serve? Because Jesus shows by his own example that we are to have a heart for service. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. I think there's a very honest question we ask here because we go, well, Dave, didn't you just say that Jesus always has been God and always is God? But verse 7 says he empties himself. What does that mean? I think that's a really important question. Three things really quickly. He gave up heavenly glory. He had a face-to-face -face relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He exchanged the throne room for being born in a barn. He gave up being worshipped by angels for snide comments from the Pharisees. He gave up some of his divine prerogatives. Jesus gave up the, the voluntary display of some of his attributes. For example, 
Another thing of Christian orthodoxy is we believe that God is all present. Maybe you've heard of the omnis, that he's omnipresent, that he's all knowing, that he's uh, all loving. Jesus cannot be a physical human being and be all present. He can't be both in Nazareth and in Jerusalem at the very same time. And of course, he took on human limitations. We read in scripture that Jesus grew tired and he needed to rest, that Jesus grew hungry and he needed to have food. And there's family expectations, like in Luke chapter two, when he's a boy and he's traveling with his parents and only for his mom and dad to realize, Jesus isn't with us anymore. Jesus, we know you wanna be in the temple, but you gotta travel with mom and dad. But if you have verse seven in front of you, there's a word that, there that we don't like, isn't there? He took on the nature of a servant. Dave, what if I'm serving people and they're not grateful for it? What if I'm serving people and they never say thank you? What if I give all of myself to all of what I'm doing, whether it's a small group, whether it's working in the kitchen, whether it's working at Hope Mission, whether it's helping somebody who needs a helping hand with their car, whatever the case might be, and they actually make a snide comment about it and say, I'm not doing well enough, or that food wasn't very good, or oh, you left a little bit of dirt in my basement when you were fixing my drywall. What do you do then? There's a modern day classic called Celebration of Discipline by uh, Mr. Rick Foster. Not our Rick Foster, but Richard Foster nonetheless. And he has this great line, I'm paraphrasing it for sake of brevity. There's a difference between serving and being a servant. In choosing to serve, we are still in charge. In being a servant, we surrender that right. But Dave, what if things don't go the way we expect? They didn't always go the way Jesus wanted them to either. And verse five reminds us our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That brings us to verse eight. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's this beautiful movement that takes place in only three verses. Again, I know I'm repeating myself. Jesus is in the beauty and the majesty and the glory of heaven. He's with the Father. He's with the Spirit. He's being worshipped by angels. Everything is great. Everything is awesome. And then he comes to earth. And it's as low as low gets. He's born in a barn from that town of Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Caesar finds out who he is, so his family has to run away to Egypt. He is made by snide comments by the religious leaders. He is killed between two criminals on a cross, the worst possible death. For Jews, they believe that anybody hung on a tree is cursed. We read in Galatians 3, another letter by Paul, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. For regular Roman society, the word cross was a cuss word. It was considered an obscenity that you would not even use in polite conversation. And yet here is Jesus giving up the beauty and the majesty of heaven to die the most despicable death possible. The physical torture of death by crucifixion between two criminals at the hands of unbelievers. And the apostle Paul is looking at us and saying, none of us in this room Nobody in Philippi, nobody online, none of us are God. And very, very, very few of us will die that kind of death. And yet here is Jesus who leaves the throne room of heaven and dying this kind of death 
to be a blessing to everybody when Jesus loves you so much that he died a criminal so that we might be raised children of a king. Sermons are a monologue. But if I were sitting where you are right now, I might be going, Dave, is there, is there any blessing here? Is there a little bit of a reward to look for? There's a joyful heart for service. Serving can be hard work, but the rewards are incredible. Jesus faced death for us. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. And so when you think, well, Dave, I know there's going to be some difficulty. I know there's going to be some challenges. It's going to cost me time. It might cost me money. It's definitely going to be using my experience to bless those who don't necessarily have that same experience. Will there be any reward for me? There will be. When you get to work in the kitchen, recognizing that you are serving food for people in Alpha who are hearing about Jesus for the very first time. When you hang out with the kids upstairs in kids' church, it's not Sunday school at Ellerslie, it's kids' church. They sing songs like we do, they have a message like we do, they break into small groups like many of us do. They're understanding what it means to be followers of Jesus and you get the privilege of having those times of prayer and leading people into faith. There's times where we gather together as worshiping, recognizing that God is using us and using our gifts and our abilities and our passions and our experiences for his glory. To see the blessing of helping out a single parent who might not be able to do it on his or her own, recognizing what a blessing it is to do it. When you join a board or a PTA or when you coach a soccer team and recognizing these kids are getting confidence for the first time in their life, I get to be that adult who loves these kids, maybe in a way that they aren't even being loved at home. And everywhere we go, we show with others the love of Jesus Christ and the impact that it has. And sometimes we as a whole church get that blessing. Because there's a couple in our church who said, you know what we want to do? On Sunday nights, we're going to hold a Persian fellowship. And we're going to teach people about Jesus, even if they don't understand the language. We're going to bring people in who can interpret it. We're going to learn some of the language ourselves. And two weeks ago, we had the incredible privilege of watching one of these men from Persia get baptized in that tank. And I'm not sure was there was a dry eye in the house. Because we recognize something is changing. And there's this reward for service of seeing lives radically transformed. If you're on the prayer team, I'd invite you to come forward to have an opportunity to pray with people who say, I want to learn what that's about. As you're coming forward, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for Philippians chapter 2. Thank you for this beautiful passage, a reminder of who you are, of what you have done, of what you have sacrificed for us, that we might see and hear the good news of Jesus. And God, whether we go into the gym and know exactly what we're gonna do, whether we're watching online for the online ministry fair, whether we connect with others and say, how are we going to serve? What difference are we gonna make that by the power of your spirit, all of us would serve in some way, in some form, in some capacity, that all of it would be for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen.